0: Welcome to the Calvary Couples podcast. We are kind of going to wrap up our fly overview here of the book of Ecclesiastes. We looked at the first chapter uh, last week, and this week we're going to look at the last chapter, or two and uh, chapter and a half, I guess. We're going to start in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 9, and then read through the end of the verse to chapter 12, verse 14. Just a little bit of background here as a reminder: we believe this book to be written and compiled by. King Solomon, if not compiled by him directly, certainly including a great deal of material that he himself compiled. And after we've kind of walked through, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes for yourself, you know, after a few chapters or so, kind of just focusing on the meaningless of life apart from God, Solomon concludes this whole, um, I guess, winding, meandering uh, walk up the kind of a mountainside and reminds his readers that we do ultimately give an account to God for how we live, and that is the, really the best way that we can reverence God and live according to His commands. Uh, that's that's the goal here. So as we get to Ecclesiastes 11 and verse 9, we have to live life keeping in mind that there will be a judgment and accountability. And that's not just for Christians. Uh, we understand that that's for all people. We'll give an account of their lives. So there's there's two extremes when you look at life. And as we contemplate and think about life and why it exists and and what, why we're here. <clears throat> There's two ways to observe it. The first one is, and these are extremes, the first one is to just only focus on darkness. Um, essentially that it's it's all going to come to an end, so it means nothing, and at the end of the day, no one will remember me. And We see this outlook in earlier passages in Ecclesiastes. And the other extreme is the danger to not really take life seriously at all. You Essentially just eat, drink, and be merry, and don't pay any attention to the consequences, not only to myself, but also to others. So here, Solomon's goal, it seems, is to help us to avoid both errors, and we, have, we avoid both of these extremes by paying attention. So he addresses the young person in verse 9 in chapter 11, and his advice is to simply enjoy life. What does he mean by enjoy life? Well, to live with a full and a happy heart, but remembering that we will give an account to God for the way that we live. So we can profit from being young, but not by being young and foolish. And we live in such a way that one can enjoy life even as one prepares to meet God. If we see life as a gift from God, and the purpose of it is to enjoy this gift that God has given us, ultimately realizing that the health and the strength and the resources and everything that we've been given will be brought into God's account and that he will answer for it, just like anyone who's been given responsibility answers to those who have authority over them. And the truth is that um, this doesn't really uh, hinder our creativity as we live. In fact, creativity really requires boundaries. It it requires constraints. If you think about the artists, they have choices to make when they're going to enter into the creative process. One who's going to carve wood has to decide what is he going to make it look like. One who paints has to decide what they're going to create. One who makes food or decorates cakes or whatnot, has to decide, how am I going to create these things within what boundaries and what choices am I going to decide on? And that's really part of the business of the creative process. Unlimited choice doesn't really, uh, it's almost overwhelming in the sense when it comes to creativity, there needs to be a system, a process and a decision on what we're going to do. So with that in mind, how does one build a happy life, if I can put it that way? Well, the first is we have to make choices. What choices are we going to make? Are we going to shrink back from the fact that, well, life's going to end, so what does it matter now anyways? We'll just be miserable, or why not just end it now anyways, right? Do we want to live as though it will never end? There's the other extreme. We, we, we choose to live joyfully and vigorously, especially when we're young, but we've got to remember that we are going to answer to God, and this is the recipe for what is a happy life. So we live life to its fullest extent within the boundaries of understanding that we, that we will give an account for what we have. So we can live joyfully. We can encourage children and grandchildren to do the same. And if they have particular interests, understand that where do those desires come from? We believe that those desires come from the one who created us. So encourage them to follow these desires. And what's interesting here in this, in this uh, particular um, chapter is we're conditioned in, in the prophet Jeremiah, and rightfully so, to be very wary of following our heart in the sense that our heart devises to do evil and wicked things, because we understand the scriptural teaching is that, is that all men are sinful. We're, we're crooked, we're bent, we're twisted. And, and it's only through the, the, um, the work of Christ that our minds are renewed and, and he can make the crooked things straight. But there's also an aspect of our heart, the inner person, and the being that God created us to be, that we have certain um, bends towards uh, certain creativity, uh, some people enjoy creativity in certain areas and others, and that's the wiring that God created us. So as we observe these natural talents and um, gifts in our children, we ought to encourage them to follow after these and enjoy it, realizing that they'll give answer to God for the gifts and talents and, and things that they desire. So if I could kind of follow that point again, realizing that Solomon was telling us to follow, not not to lead us astray, to follow our heart, not to lead us, to, to lead us astray, But to follow it in the realization that God will call it into account. So we live life in such a way to be ready to answer to God. And there's no contradiction in the Bible's instructions, like I mentioned earlier, between Jeremiah and Ecclesiastes. It's just advice in a different way. So Jeremiah's advice is to beware of your heart leading you to do evil. Whereas Ecclesiastes' instruction is to follow the natural way that God has wired you as an individual as a unique person in creation of God, what is God calling you to do? And what is God calling your children to do? And help them to follow through in a lot of those different things. So then we get to verse 1 in chapter 12, and it's poetry, really, in its most beautiful form. And as it's translated for us in English, we don't often get to see the beauty of it, but there's poetry here in the way that Solomon describes age and aging. But he emphasizes enjoying life. And in chapter 12, he paints a more detailed picture of what's coming. So he says, enjoy life now because here's what's coming. We, we don't want to live life only under the sun or apart from God, as we mentioned earlier in the first chapter. And this means that we will find no pleasure in the heart. It doesn't mean that we won't find pleasure in the, in the harder years of age, but it's not as easy. Enjoying life and, li- and loving life doesn't come as easily the older we get, in some sense, because we're limited in what we can and can't do. And and most interpreters see verse 2 and 7 as really a poetic description of old age, and an older person hardly needs the reminder of what aging can be like. Solomon goes through this lengthy description for the sake of the young. So again, he's speaking to the young, and he's saying this is what is going to happen in the future. And he wants them to think about what was coming their way. He speaks of things that are diminishing with, with old age. He talks about joy diminishes, eyesight diminishes, movement diminishes, hearing, speaking, desire, and more. They all diminish with old age, and... He spoke of increasing fear and frailty that comes with old age. And he closes with the image of an abandoned well. The cord snapped, the bowl or the bucket was broken, the pitcher is pouring water into the other vessels and is shattered. And the wheel or the pulley to pull up the water is broken. Essentially, it's, it's the final um, climax of life is over. So in verse 8, he gives us uh, Solomon's final repetition of the refrain. He repeats through the book, Apart from God, it's all meaningless. And if one does not die tragically young... One dies pitifully old, and that's life under the sun. And I'm grateful, and we'll move on here in a minute, but that is not how Ecclesiastes ends. There is more to look forward to, because if that is how life ends, and that is how life ends apart from God, you follow two paths. You're either going to be one of those people in the newspaper that's written about that died tragically young, or you're going to be one of those people in the obituary section who dies pitifully old. One people pay more attention to, the other one people don't pay very much attention to. But if this is all there is, then that's life under the sun. So Solomon's advice is to give thought and attention to God while we are young, worshiping and serving Him. And the time will come when our abilities and faculties will diminish, when we will not be able to do for God and for others what we once did. In fact, the day will come when our life becomes very difficult, if God, by His providence, sees fit to have us live that way. Remembering God while we can still remember anything... (laughs) And praise God, while we can still raise a voice in praise. So we listen to God and others, while we can still hear anything at all. And do something for God and others, while we still can. And the translation here in, I'm just going to kind of dive in a little deeper here. The translation in uh, verse 1, chapter 12, speaks of evil days. And it's not to confuse us with the idea of moral evil, but it's just that the curse that came from Genesis chapter 3, that's eventually going to claim all of us. As Adam sinned, death passed upon all men, because all men are sinners, the scripture tells us. So verse two through seven are worth examining. So let's look at a little bit of these um metaphors that, that uh these similes that Solomon uses in some of this this poetry that we read from chapter 12, verse 2 through 7. He says, Life in Israel follows well-defined weather patterns, and the spring clouds would come and go, but autumn, and especially winter clouds, tended to set in and hang around. So as we age, it seems that the aches and pains and various ailments tend to stay for longer than they used to. So there's some of the illustration in verse 2. In verse 3, The knees and the hips and the legs become frailer, leading to these precarious shaking walking. Also, he talks about grinders. Teeth can grind as well, but they are—they can't grind very well when they're missing. And eyesight also dims. Even cataract surgery isn't a cure for failing eyes. Then we get to verse 4, our hearing weakens and gradually shutting us up into this what this term of this house of silence. The sound of things, they, they are kind of faintly, the teeth are gone, the speech suffers, and most most believe that the rising up of the sound of the birds indicates how the old can easily be startled. In spite of bad hearing, some see a waking up at first light when the birds begin to sing, and you can interpret that either way. And then when you get to verse 5, with aging, people tend to be more risk-averse. It talks about the fear. It often shows in their driving or their hesitation to do things like climbing, for instance. The almond tree that's referenced here is in full bloom, and when it's in full bloom, it appears to be this bright white fluffy ball. And obviously this is a reference to gray or white hair talks about the grasshopper that drags itself along in cold weather, which reminds us of the painful moving of stiffness of joints that happen as we get old. Even desire, and some translate this as the caperberry, which was known in ancient times, and refers to sexual desire. That The caperberry was often a popular sexual stimulant in ancient times. But even in this case, even the stimulants fail. The eternal home in this case may be no more than the grave, considering the rest of the passage, but we can't rule out a truly eternal home with or without God. And then obviously mourners that are referenced in verse 5 refer to this funeral procession that happens when someone passes away. So in verse 6, this is the final breakdown of the living human organism. Some, some scholars decipher the silver cord as the spinal cord connecting the brain to the body. They'll usually think of the golden bowl as like a skull containing the brain. And others see a silver cord just holding a golden bowl at a well. In either case, the result is the same, that the body breaks down and dies. It's, it's, the, it's the complete destruction of the body. And in verse 7, our body begins its descent back to the dust, and our spirit meets its creator. So we don't want to scare children or grandchildren when they encounter old people, but what we need to be mindful of when we're reading these verses is to let us instead help them and be more understanding of those who have diminished capacities. And as a Christian, it's part of the, the, the Christian ethic is that we have respect for the elderly. It is a good thing. We respect for all people, but we especially need to care for those who are unable to care for themselves. So as we walk away from this first half of this lesson here, we, we need to remind ourselves to keep about accountability to God and the coming judgment in mind as we make daily decisions. And why is it important to be aware of the coming judgment? Although not the highest motivation, the threat of punishment does help us stay on track, but it also motivates us to warn others. And what choices and actions can demonstrate that we have accountability to God in mind? Well, we we put all things into subjection to Him who is Christ, who has given us all things, and we we keep God in mind in every decision that we make, not just quote-unquote spiritual decisions, but understanding that the Christian life is a mix of the sacred and secular woven together in the person that God has created us to be, and we put all those things in subjection to Christ. And why is it better for people to come to Christ and live for Him earlier in life rather than later? Well, we can just, quite frankly, simply put, do more for God's kingdom. We have more time, we have more energy, we have more talent. And, and, this, and this allows us to avoid some of the consequences of sin that we often experience at early points in life. And just at the end of the day, life is better lived God's way. It's God who designed life. It's God who knows how life should be best lived. So let us listen to his instruction and follow after his commands. I hope this has been helpful. We're going to come back here in just a moment. And we're going to look at how does Solomon wrap this whole thing up? What are the final instructions to the young, to the old, to all of us to live life w- with wisdom? <music> Welcome back. We're going to finish up this last um, portion of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We're going to look at verse 9 through 14. We just kind of walk through Solomon's advice to the young, and he gives this poetic description of what they are going to experience as they get older. And then he kind of wraps it up here in verse 9. And really the last few verses tie up what I would say are loose ends. And we find out more about Solomon. It's almost like a changing scene here where the, the, the story concludes and then all of a sudden the narrator comes in. And he says to us, And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge, and they gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. So here we see Solomon the teacher or the preacher, and he doesn't hoard wisdom just for himself. What he does is he shares wisdom, and he works at discovering and organizing proverbs in in a clear way that, that we can understand. He wasn't just content to collect them. He puts effort into finding the best way to express wisdom. And as a result... Verses 9 and 10 tell us that what he had to say was trustworthy. And then verse 11, and the first part of verse 12, tell us some important things about the words of the wise. It says the words of the wise are as goads, they poke, and as nails that fasten the master of assemblies which are given from one shepherd. So as we look here, we see that the this is the core of all the wisdom literature of the Bible. And when we use the term, we're talking about the Proverbs and the Psalms and the Ecclesiastes and even Song of Solomon. And there's other wisdom sayings that are found elsewhere in the Bible, but that's usually what we mean when we talk about wisdom literature. And what's the point of wisdom wisdom literature? Well, the words work primarily in two ways. First, they're like goads, as referenced in verse 11, the sharply pointed sticks that are used to get the ox to keep moving or moving in the right direction. See, words of wisdom spur us into action, to do the right thing or to move in the right direction. Then secondly, they're like embedded nails. Where goads produce movement, nails produce stability. Some things just simply don't need to move. They actually need to be fastened down. And words of wisdom help to nail things down, keeping us from just wandering off on our own way apart from God. Remember, apart from God is, is the ultimate definition of vanity and meaninglessness. So we need to keep ourselves nailed and fastened to God and His Word and His instruction. So to summarize, words of wisdom serve to move what needs get to get moving and to settle down what needs to stay settled. God is not against books or literature, as we read in uh, verse 12 and 13, where there's nothing else to be written, The the writer says here. But the Bible, after all, is the conclusion of all books. It seems clear that we have multiplied words, and books after books, and volumes after volumes are written, and sometimes it just makes us weary with the overwhelming tsunami of literature that comes our way. But we understand that the thoughtful person doesn't just wade through all that literature, and the hardcover, and the paperback books, and the newspapers, and the magazines, and everything else that we find um, on the online world. But there may be much to be written still, but nothing else to be heard. Look at verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. What else does there need to be heard? Through what lens do we view everything else that's written? Because we're not waiting for any new discovery in art, science, or economics, or politics that will invalidate what we read here in verse 13. There's one central duty for every human being, believer, unbeliever, every one of us. There's one central duty. That God will have the last word and his judgment and evaluation will prevail. And He's not going to easily ignore our attempts to excuse what is wrong or to condemn what is right in verse fourteen. We can do no better than to live the life that He has set before us to fear Him, to keep His commandments, and to await His final word. Sometimes you and I just need to stop talking. (laughs) We need to listen. And we need to understand that it's God who's going to have the final word. We need to stop making excuses for why we do things the way we do or why we don't do things the way we do when we know the truth of God's word instructs us to do it His way. Because He's not going to listen to our pitiful attempts to explain ourselves away when we knew all the while exactly what we should be doing. So what is the whole duty of man? Well, Solomon speaks here of universal obligation. Language, culture, historical era, political system, they don't matter. They matter in the sense of day-to-day life and living, but when we reach the final conclusion and our final breath is given, and in every time and every place, our responsibility is to do what? Fear God. Keep His commandments is the all-encompassing duty of every person. And note carefully, however, that Solomon's reference to God's judgment over every deed does not mean salvation by works. That's not really the intention here. We can't earn salvation by doing good works. We find that opened up for us elsewhere in the Scripture. As believers, we understand it's Christ's work that saves us and we will, however, give an account for the way we live. So as a believer, we view the judgment entirely differently. I read verse 14 completely differently than I used to because when I know that I stand before God and that all these things that I have done are brought into subjection and I give accountability to God for them, I understand that when I stand before Christ and when I stand before God, I have the record of Jesus Christ on me. His righteousness is my righteousness. So what does that mean for me? What that means for me is that I have a God who doesn't see me from a distance, who isn't far off, but that God, where it says he'll bring every work into judgment, I have a God who's not only transcendent, but I have a God who is imminent, meaning that he is here now with me, caring about every single aspect of my life. And he's the only one who's able to do that because he is the only one who is omniscient, who is omnipotent, who is all-knowing. It is God who is evident and who is aware and who is in and through all things. And he sees me not just on the outward, but he sees me also on the inward. And I have a God who cares about every aspect of my life, so much so that he's going to take every aspect of it and bring me into account for every gift that he's given me. So keep that in mind. Rather than viewing the judgment as a fearful thing, and it should be that we have to balance this, but understand that the only reason God's going to bring all these things into judgment is because he cares about us so much. So what's the takeaway here? Demonstrate reverence for God and obey his word by knowing we will give an account for the way we live. So what attitudes and actions demonstrate reverence for God? Well, we come humbly before him. We have humility. We have a desire to please him because we love him. We obey his word because we understand he is the only one who has the words of life. And we surrender to God's will in every area and aspect. And when has God used his word to prod you to take appropriate action? When have you heard the wisdom sayings like a goad that have pushed you in the right direction? You have to answer that question for yourself. And when has God's word helped you to stand firm in some area of life? When has God nailed down the things in your life that don't need to be moved? I hope you can answer that question as well. So here we are. We've wrapped up. kind of done a flyover view of the book of Ecclesiastes. I hope it's encouraged you to maybe study through it yourself. And if nothing else, it gives us a sober view of our lives that we should not live life as though it will end tomorrow, but we certainly shouldn't live life as though it will never end, and keeping always in mind that we will give an accountability to God. And at the end of the day, that is the bottom line. So I hope this lesson has been helpful. I look forward to studying with you next time, here on the Calvary Couples Podcast.